0: with me in prayer as we go before our God together. Almighty God, we come to you thanking you that we are accepted before you not because of any position we hold or what we do but because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Father, help us as a a church to not merely believe this, but to rest in this and to glory in it. Father, we pray today as a church body together, presenting our needs to you. Father, specifically today, we pray for our, chir- our children. Father, we are reminded of the need for our children to repent of their sin and to come to saving faith. So, Father, we pray that you would work in them Even now, as they've gone out to study your word, Father, we pray that you would call them to yourself. We pray that you would give them fruit that over the years evidences a true faith that is their own. Father, we thank you for Clara Lutz as she's begun serving, volunteering, and and coordinating our children's ministry. Father, we pray that you would give Clara wisdom. We pray that you'd give her insight give her the help of of many in our congregation to to volunteer and to serve alongside of her with our children. Father, we pray that you would give favor to this area of ministry. Lord, we are reminded to pray for our nation today. and So we pray that you would be with our president and our Congress, our, our Senate, our Supreme Court justices. Father, we pray that the government of this country would govern in such a way that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and and dignified in every way. Father, we pray that you would give wisdom to our governing authorities. Father, we pray that you would help us as a church to be subject to them, knowing that there's no authority except from you, O God, and that these authorities exist because they have been instituted by you. Help us, we pray, O oh God, to live in this country in a way that shows our true citizenship is of another world. Father, as we think about the world, we're reminded to, to pray for Vlad and Phoebe this morning. We pray that you would protect our dear brother and sister as they serve in Ukraine. We pray that you would spare lives in Ukraine today. Father, we pray that the gospel would go forward there we pray for the local church and churches across cr- Ukraine. We pray that Vlad and Phoebe would be servants of the gospel and that it would be encouraging the healthy churches there. Father, bring them back to us safely later this month, we pray. Now, God, we pray that you would bless the study of your word. We indeed need to hear from you. We need this more than anything else. Father, we need to see Jesus Christ. We need our lives conformed into his image once again. And so we are dependent on you. I, oh God, am dependent on you right now. We ask that you would speak through your word, O oh God. We ask that you would shape us, O oh God. We pray that you would draw us into worship and adoration of the Son in His glory. Work in us. Give us sight. Give us the eyes of faith that we could see Christ. And in seeing Him, in seeing His beauty, oh God, may we be transformed. We ask that you'd work. We praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I wonder what beautiful scenes you have witnessed firsthand in your life. I wonder if you've ever been an eyewitness to something just positively unforgettable in your life. Uh, perhaps you can think of some mountaintop view that you've seen, or perhaps the array of clouds as you've broken through them from in an airplane. Perhaps you can think of, of a miracle like watching a child be born and the miracle of birth. Or witnessing a, a breathtaking sunset or an arresting ocean sunrise. Perhaps you've traveled to a, a different country and, and you've seen sights that have just left an indelible mark on your mind and in your memory. Or maybe you can re- recall an especially starry night when, far away from any city lights, you looked up and you saw. Thousands of gleaming stars sprinkled across the night sky. First-hand glimpses of beauty leave powerful impressions, don't they? Well, shortly before his martyrdom in the mid-60s AD, the Apostle Peter wrote to the church from a Roman jail cell. And he reflected on one such memorable experience in his life that he witnessed firsthand himself. Indelibly written on his memory, Peter wrote about what he would call being witness, and eyewitness of majesty. Listen to what he said. He said this, he said, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. As an old man in that Roman jail cell, Peter re- reflected on this categorically staggering event that we're about to study, we're about to read about, recorded by in the book of Luke. So if you've brought your Bibles today, open your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke chapter nine. We're going to read and study the story of the transfiguration, which Walt just read from us from Luke 9, verses 28 through 36. And, and this story that we're coming to this week as we work through the book of Luke, uh, Jesus' ministry in Galilee is r- here pivoting. And he's about to turn his attention to Jerusalem. He is starting to spend more time teaching his disciples as he travels to Jerusalem. And as we saw last week, the focus turns from who Christ is, To how his disciples should live As he teaches them So this passage again is part of that pivot And and today's story is just one episode That we see up on this mountain I'm going to break it down It it seems to have four main developments As the passage moves along Each of them seem to emphasize a different aspect of Christ that, That we are meant to see And to worship him for I'll just merely structure my sermon around that development. We will worship Christ together today, I pray, for his glory, his redemption, his presence, and his deity. My goal is that as we see Christ and worship him today, that we will glory in him, and therefore, listen to him. Look at how the context is set in verse 28 there in your Bibles. Now, about eight days after these sayings, He took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So this story is closely linked to the uh, revelation that we just saw, the announcement from Peter last week of Jesus Christ being uh, the Christ of God. And now just eight days later, Jesus goes up on a mountain. And we see this scene unfold. Look at verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Number one, we worship Christ for his glory displayed. I wonder if you can imagine this. While praying, Christ was transfigured before them. That word merely means his, his physical appearance was altered. His physical body changed to reflect some of his divine being, his divine nature. Now, we've already talked throughout this study of Luke about how Christ is fully God, and yet he emptied himself by taking on human flesh. He remained completely divine, yet he veiled his glory by being born as a man. Scripture says he had no stately form or majesty that we should be drawn to him, except for now. For a moment, now for a moment, he is revealed with some of his majesty, and it was glorious. The text says his face was altered. Okay, so do you remember perhaps standing outside as a child on a very sunny day, and your, your mother tells you, don't look up at the sun directly, or you will go blind. So, what do you do? Well, you try to look at the sun. And you, you take a look, and you quickly figure out, oh yeah, I might go blind if I keep this up. Uh, the, the light just from the sun just sears your, your retina as this star and its sheer power blazes from 93 million miles away. And friends, Matthew's account tells us of this story that looking at this radiant display of Christ's face, was like looking at the shining sun. But that's not all. Notice his clothing became dazzling white. Mark gives commentary on this word dazzling, saying it was radiant, it was intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach clothes, white as light. Friends, this is what Peter is calling majesty in his account. Royal glory. Shown to the disciples. Now, I, I come to this text and I'm just drawn to ask, why? W- what is happening here? Why did God the Father, according to 2 Peter, give this visible honor and glory to God the Son to alter his appearance here? Why? What, what was happening? I mean, God has chosen to not do this for the, the majority of Christ's life. He, life. He, was, he was clothed in human flesh is chosen to not normally give us this view. But here we see that he chose to show the disciples and then us, according through Scripture, this, this glimpse, this preview. Why? What's happening? Well, two reasons. Uh, let me show you from the text. First, I believe that, that God the Father transfigured the Son because he is teaching us to see and worship Christ as the glorious one. Is, is making sure, in the pages of Scripture, indelibly written, that there is this, this preview, this, this taste of the divine triune glory of the Godhead, and that it is in Christ. It's proof positive of Hebrews 1 verse 3, which says, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We see this and we say, yes. This is him. He was merely veiled for a time in human flesh. He is glorious. Oh friends, should we not worship this glorious one today? Would if if we see this taste, this mere this mere momentary preview of some of the glory of the sun, S-O-N, shining as bright as the sun, S-U-N. this mere preview of eternity future, should not we worship him today? This one who one day we will see face to face. Why would God give us this unique moment of glory to the Son? Secondly, I think this is the direction of the text, God the Father gave this honor and glory to the Son to to point to, to, to signal to to shine a bright light on the fulfillment of his plan of redemption. He's trying to underscore what he's doing with this culminating plan. This takes us to our second point today. We worship Christ for his glory displayed. Number two, his redemption fulfilled. You see, God is using this visible glory to point to and underscore the culmination of this fulfilled plan of salvation that is coming to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So just as Luke had promised to Theophilus back in Luke 1 verse 3 to, to show him the things that were accomplished, you remember that word means fulfilled, the things that were fulfilled in Christ, well now he's about to show us more from the Old Testament of what is being fulfilled in Christ. So read with me, starting in verse 30. We find there, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men who stood with him. Then look down at verse 34 as well. We read there, and he was say- and as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. Okay, so, so what's happening here with these two visitors? Peter, Peter, and the disciples are there. Jesus is praying. Peter and the disciples seem to have fallen asleep. While Jesus is praying, which isn't the last time that this will happen for Peter and the disciples And then they they wake up and, And Luke is careful to tell us that they aren't dreaming This isn't just their imagination here They are fully awake and they see his glory But then they also see these two men God miraculously brought Moses and Elijah to meet with Christ on this mountain Now why Moses? Why Elijah? I think the picture is one of fulfillment of a story that's been going on for some time. As others have noted, I think it rightly points to to Moses typifying the prophetic office that Jesus will occupy. And Elijah, with his ministry of the eschaton, picturing the hope of the, the coming kingdom that Christ is bringing. But look at how it develops. Got, we, we, we get to listen in as Jesus is talking to these two prophets up on the mountain. We get to listen in to hear what were they talking about. And the, the, here we find a clue. Verse 31, they spoke of his departure, of what he was about to accomplish, that is, that what, what he's about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Okay, this is just mind-blowing. This was... This just blew my mind this week when I discovered this. You see, this word, departure, verse 31, would have been read by the original readers as a different word. They would see this word as exodus. They would see this word for the great deliverance and the the redemption of God's people from Egypt. So D.A. Carson writes this. He says, the word here is exodus. And there are other ways of talking about departure. To speak of this as the exodus is meant to be evocative. It is meant to call the biblically literate reader's mind back to the exodus. So Jesus is going to leave, he's going to exit. Jesus is comparing his final work with the great redemption of God in salvation history. And then we start to pull on this thread. We start to follow this clue. And we realize that the the parallels to Moses are just all over the story. God's doing something here. You see, Moses had gone up on a mountain, Mount Sinai. Now Jesus goes up on the mountain. Moses had gone up to talk to God. And Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. Moses had entered into a cloud to meet with God and here Jesus and his disciples are entering into a cloud to hear from God. Moses' face, what what happened to Moses' face? Do you remember? <laughs> it, it shone. It started shining as he was up there, reflecting the glory of God. And here, Jesus' face shines, but but not not extrinsically, not from something outside of him bouncing off of his face and coming out, but intrinsically from who he is. He is shining forth. Moses had led this great departure, the exodus, the redemption of God's people, and Jesus led the greater exodus, the great redemption. He is headed to a cross to fulfill redemption and rescue us who are in slavery. The point is that the life and coming death of Jesus is the, the fulfillment of all history is pointing to, of all that the biblical history and the, the plan of redemption is pointing to. It's always been pointing to him. And what he's about to go do and fulfill in Jerusalem. And so on this mountain, this fulfillment, it's underlined, it's underlined, It's highlighted. There's a divine neon highlight marker of God's glory where God is saying, look what I'm about to do. I'm going to fulfill the whole story that I've been telling you about. Oh, friends, when we look to Jesus Christ and we worship him, we don't just worship the Savior that did one isolated act in history on a cross, although that is rightly at the center. Oh, we see one who's coming is just the culmination of the whole story. It's the the fulfillment that of of the story that's all along been pointing to him. And this scene reminds us of that. Isn't it glorious? Worshipping Christ in, in this way with this this panorama view. Well, it just has countless applications. Maybe just maybe just over lunch. Just think What other ways should this affect our worship when we see Christ with this view? Let me just give you one. If Jesus is this glorious, so if he is the culminating work of all of biblical history, and if he is orchestrating all of history to accomplish this final exodus, well, then you should listen to what he has to say. You should listen to him. His words should matter to you. You see, if he can plan the shaping of history, well, then his words should be shaping your life. Listen to Jesus. Let's keep moving. We worship Christ today for his glory displayed, his redemption fulfilled. Thirdly, we worship him for his presence given. Number three, his presence given. Now, let me explain to you why I'm led to say that from this story. Let me unpack it. So the, the disciples, they're up on that mountain, and they awake. They, they see this glory, this scene before them. And it's, it's clear that Moses and, Eli- and Elijah were getting ready to leave. And so, so Peter quickly jumps up and he speaks. Look at verses 31 and 34. We read, As the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us build three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. So Peter seems like he's trying to be helpful. Uh, he especially seems like he's not wanting this, this moment to end. So he offers to build these three tents. Uh, likely, this might be a reference to the Feast of Booths or the, the Feast of Tabernacles in the Old Testament. That That festival looked back to God's provision in the wilderness and looked forward to God's coming deliverance. It seems that that Peter is offering to help celebrate this festival by by building tents. And so Peter here was getting this unusual display of God's present glory. He was getting this live, firsthand preview. And he didn't want to lose it. The glory of God's presence was right there in front of him. I think he wanted to extend this. I think he wanted to dwell to to tabernacle with this glory. I think Peter's inclination I think his inclination to to build the tents was was misplaced. Wasn't his his usefulness seen wasn't in building tents. Wasn't what the Lord needed, but his his desire to stay in the presence of glory was so fitting, wasn't it? I think Peter experienced mere moments of this, and he wanted more. And so verse 33 says he was beside himself. He He didn't even know what he was saying. Well, Peter is interrupted. Verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. Okay, picture this. Not wanting to leave, as he's still speaking, a cloud starts coming and overshadowing them. On this mountaintop, they, they can clearly tell that this is this is a strange cloud. This isn't just some ordinary cloud coming and covering them. Verse thirty-four says they were afraid as they entered this cloud. Maybe, maybe just maybe, their their minds were going back to Exodus twenty-four. We just talked about this when Moses was on a different mountain, Mount Sinai, and there he saw the glory of the Lord, and a cloud came and covered that mountain. Exodus uses the same word, by the way, overshadowed. And, and a voice came out of the cloud on that day, but on that mountain, the people were told to stay back, lest any of them touch the mountain and die. And so maybe and maybe Peter and the disciples were right to think that they should be a bit afraid at this moment. What's going on with this cloud? What is God doing as he's interrupting Peter's idea Pursuing greater presence. One commentator gives a helpful thought. Listen to what he says. He says, The cloud's presence seems to be God's answer to Peter's suggestion. No booths are needed, since God has wrapped the disciples in his glory and presence. God's very presence is associated with Jesus, through whom they have access to full communion, And presence with God. You see, it seems clear to me that that God answers Peter's desire here with this message that is pointing to Jesus. We'll think about what the voice said in a minute, but just first think about that. So, Peter, do you you want the the presence of God to, to linger with you? Well, you have it with Christ. Listen to him. Down off the mountain, uh, Christ may be veiled in human flesh, requiring the eyes of faith, but Peter, he is still yours for the taking. Oh, church, do you want the presence of God to linger with you? You have it in Christ. Listen to him. He might be veiled to the eyes of sight, requiring the eyes of faith. But church, he is yours for the taking. I was just reflecting on this this weekend as I was thinking over this sermon the last couple days and reflecting on on the presence of Christ with us. I was thinking of all the, the places in Scripture where we have this promise where Christ tells us he will be with us. One of them is the Great Commission. He promises to be with us as we go out and extend the church as we're making disciples spreading the gospel. Or another one that came to mind was Matthew 18, when when Christ is teaching about the church that he will establish. And he's teaching about the church's work of discipline and accountability. Do you remember what he says? He says, he, he speaks of our gathering at that point. And he says, when we gather in his name, there I am among you or among them. Think of that. The the presence of Christ. The same presence that it seemed Peter desired. The same person who was standing there in glory that day. That same person promises to meet with his gathered people. Here. Among us. He promises it. Two or three gathered in my name. There I am among them. It's glorious. Worship Christ today, for his presence is given. Well, lastly, this episode culminates in a spoken word from God. You see that we should worship here Christ number four for his deity confirmed. Look again at verse 34 and following. We read there, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So on this mountain, with this cloud, God speaks. Now, in the last week we talked about how Luke had been focused for, for just chapters on this one question. You remember what the kind of underlying theme last week was, that one question? Who is Jesus? Who is this? Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Who is this one that speaks blasphemies? And, And last week we saw the disciples rightly answer, he is the Christ of God. Well now, now God the Father himself wants to give an answer. The disciples were right, he is the Christ. And and Jesus was right to define his messiahship by his suffering. But now God the Father will speak. What must it have been like to be on that mountain? And that that voice comes from the cloud. This is my son, my chosen one. Let there be no question in your mind. Let let the, the issue be settled. Let it be crystal clear Jesus Christ is the Son of God, His Chosen One. Now, we, as who have been studying through Luke, will remember immediately a similar time when, when God gave a similar affirmation. At the baptism of Christ, Luke 3, you are my beloved Son, with, whom, with you I'm well pleased. There, the, the God the Father affirmed Jesus' deity before Jesus was set out into ministry and into the, the temptation. Well, here, Jesus is now on the the cusp of of turning his ministry and is getting ready to face Jerusalem. The culmination of all of this, all that history has been waiting for. He is getting ready to stare down his death, of, of taking on himself the wrath of God for the sins of the world. And on the cusp of that, once again, God affirms his son. But this time, notice the emphasis that is added in this affirmation. Did you see it there? Affirming that Christ is the Son of God as he heads this departure. God the Father says, this is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now this, again, just pardon me for just finding this fascinating. There's two things going on here. Uh, First of all, I've I've been trying to show you all and, and trace for you all these connections between between. Moses and what's happening on Sinai and Jesus and here we stumble on another one. You see if we if we flip back to Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, we find this prophecy of a coming greater Moses. And if we were to read that prophecy, we find the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers it is to him you shall listen <laughs> could god the father here be alluding to deuteronomy on that mountain <laughs> for centuries this this greater moses was foretold and now with with that same language we're told listen to him and at what a time as well these words listen to him match that line of the book of luke don't they recognizing the identity of Christ in the first half of the book of Luke, we're told to now listen to his teachings, where we're headed in the second half of the book of Luke. Listen after passage after passage, as chapters 9 through 19, teach on our teachings from Christ. We're told to listen carefully to what he says. Since he is God, we must hear what he has to say. So just one very practical, immediate application for us with these three words, listen to him. Is that you should come to church. If you're not a member of this church, fine, go elsewhere. But over the next several months, we're going to just keep walking through the book of Luke. And we're going to read what Jesus says. And we're going to listen to him. And so make it a priority. Make it a commitment for yourself that you will obey this very direct command of God, that you will listen to Christ. Uh, You can do this by reading the passage in advance. You can do this, uh, you can solidify this by discussing it afterwards, making sure that your listening is like we saw before, not just merely hearing the word, but applying it to your life and allowing it to shape your life. True listening includes obedience and repentance. But we are to listen to Jesus. Uh, by the way, I should say here that if, if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, let me just point out again that this passage gives such a clear dividing line for us. I mean, you have to read this and you have to do something with who Jesus is here presented as. You have to either say he is either God or he is not. And if he is God, you must listen. You must shape your life after this man. Listen to how C.S. Lewis explains this. It's so helpful, I'm just going to read a paragraph from him. He says this, he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. They say, I'm ready to accept Christ. Jesus is a, a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either, the, either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for being a fool. You can spit at him or kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So you're thinking about Jesus. He must be either a lunatic a liar or our lord there's no other options the message of the bible says that that god has created us to know him but that we have turned against god in our desire to be our own lord in our desire to rule ourselves and so we have not followed his good law we've not submitted ourselves to him the bible says that when we have done this that God is righteously, rightly angry with us. That this is, this is divine treason before him. And so that we deserve to be punished. The good news is that God in his kindness sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and live this perfect life and, and die on our behalf as the son of God and, and take our punishment and, and then rise from the grave so that anyone here who would look to him in faith, anyone here who would trust in him, would find their sins forgiven, would find themselves being called a chosen one, a a son of God, because he will take away our sin. I I encourage you, I I plead with you, consider Christ. He must be either a a liar, a lunatic, or your Lord. There is no other option. In fact, this this work that he was doing, this gospel message I'm telling you about, I think that's actually the the, the third, that second phrase that the voice was mentioning when he said, when God the Father said, This is my Son, my chosen one. I think he's referring to that. I think he's talking about in eternity past how God the Father and, and God the Son entered into this covenant of redemption, this plan of salvation for us, and Christ was chosen. He was the chosen suffering servant who would come and bear the sin for us. Won't you submit to him today? Well, we should conclude. I, I've, I've tried to offer some application along the way today, but honestly, my, my driving focus for us today is primarily that you will see Christ again and worship Him. Christ, the fulfillment of all of salvation history, the promised one. Christ, the glorious, shining Son of God, unimaginable in glory, that we even have the smallest preview of in this passage. Christ, the one who didn't have tents built, but himself came and tabernacled among us and has given us his presence. In a small way, he's a bit like that starry night that you can't forget, or that sky-splitting sunset that leaves you mesmerized, wanting more. You and I were made for this glory and to find our joy in it. It's what we're made for. Jonathan Edwards knew this full well. Let me me end with a quote by him. He he says this. He says, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers. Fathers. mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends, or whatever beautiful scene you imagined at the beginning of this sermon, are but shadows. And God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. But God is the sun. These are but streams. But God. Oh, that God would give us such a view of Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the glory of Jesus Christ. We praise you for your kindness in creating us with appetites to see this glory and to savor it. Father, I pray that we as a church would satisfy those appetites. In Christ, may we as a church look to Christ today and this week, and revel in Him. May we take joy in His glory and His His presence, promising to be with us here, His church. May we take joy in His beautiful plan of salvation. May we find our rest in Him. Shape us, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.